Hello and welcome to Potshot. I'm Alex Towles. I'm joined, as always, by Alex Collings and Sebastian Hund. Hello, lads. How are we doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you, Towles? I'm I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been a long day, you, but I'm ready to settle you know in and talk about the season. I've realised other pods do a much better job of us at the intro part. Mm. We, we uh-huh. can keep yeah. So we'll work on this for next time. <laughs> yeah. See, that this is this is one part of the season review. You don't know this, listener. Like part of it is we're gonna really critically critically review our own our own. We're gonna get better at saying our hi. intros have been met. We're gonna get so better. We're gonna get better at that. <laughs> but you know what? That's not for today. One man who has not said hi yet, so he can do a really great job, is Lorcan. Hello, Lorcan. Hello. Thanks for having me. More than welcome. It was a pleasure to have you on last time. And we've been really excited to bring you back on and discuss the season that was for Arsenal. So, so the plan today, we've got quite a lot to get through. We're going to start off by quickly going through the Wolves game. Uh, as there are some interesting tidbits that we want to discuss, even though it like, was a, like, a dead rubber, let's be honest. It had some interesting things that happened in there. So we're going to have a look at those explain why some things that perhaps didn't work against Forest did work against Wolves. Then we're going to do a review of the season, and this is going to come in two parts. The first part is going to be a more general season review, where we talk about our thoughts and feelings of the season as a whole. And the second part is going to be the inaugural Pot Shot Awards, where we are all each going to pick a winner for a list of awards that we have written. I, I'm very excited for this, and definitely, definitely have prepared answers to all of the questions. Before we get into things today, I'd want to give you a quick rundown of what in the next few weeks of the podcast are going to look like, because we're not going to stop for the summer. We've got loads of content coming up for you over pre-season. So this week, of course, we're doing the general season review, taking a wider lens to look back on the season. Next week, we're going to do a squad review, where we're going to go through the entire squad, loanies, uh, basically anyone who has like a reasonable chance of playing football next season, and decide whether we want to keep them, whether we think we should sell them, or whether they should go out on loan. We're also going to have a quick look at some possible transfer targets that we think Arsenal should have based on who we think we should keep, sell or loan. After next week, there will be at least one podcast every two weeks throughout the summer until the season starts again. There is the potential for more pods alongside that, depending on how transfer news goes, essentially. We might do podcasts about transfers as they come in. We'll see where the summer takes us in terms of that. I'm not going to say exactly what all of those pods are going to be. We'll keep that under wraps, keep you excited for it. But trust me, we've got some cool stuff lined up. But first, today and the Wolves game and last season. So we were right in saying that we were going to end the season with a plum like we did last year. 5-0 win at home at the Emirates. A party atmosphere worthy to send off the season. A party atmosphere worthy to send off, maybe, a fan favourite of the last few years. Last couple Alex, of months. Alex, come and talk to me <laughs> about Granite Xhaka. Um, 
Well, what a fitting way for him to actually go out, if he does go out, which it does sound like he will, um, with a brace, almost a hat-trick if he had converted another pretty decent chance in the box. Um, it's funny, I put the story out already, but my dad actually transferred him in on Fantasy Premier League, um, and me and him were like still fighting at the top until the last week, but he transferred him in out of respect for, for Granite, made Granite captain, and actually... The whole day, yeah, he was just saluting. He was he was very pumped. So it was a it was a good it was a good extra vibe to have him there. And I still won in our league, so all good, all good. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, no, I think if we can take a moment to speak about Granite Jacker, because this is maybe one of the last moments we will. Um, I don't want to take too much away because I know Seb will have a lot of thoughts. I think Lorcan will too. But if this is him leaving, it's pretty much the perfect way for him to go maybe would have been much better to end it with him hoisting the the trophy. But just in terms of his personal journey, I've always been a big fan of Jacques and a defender of his, um, I have to say. But I think going from basically enemy number one, what, two years ago? It feels like that. No, maybe more, three years ago. Near the end of Emery's reign. Yeah, damn. Time's actually gone quickly with Arteta here. But yeah, basically deciding to leave the club... Um, Arteta basically saying, stay for six months, see if you want to. And then still to go from that point to where people were singing at the end, Granit Xhaka, we want you to stay. People were begging for him to sign a contract extension or to stay at the club, sorry. Um, yeah, I just think it's a huge thing. I think it's deserving of the man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy that he's leaving on this note rather than the note that he might have. Yeah, I think that encapsulates it quite well. Uh, for me... Considering all of this, I think Granite has been the sort of embodiment of the evolution Arsenal has taken under Mikel Arteta, sort of the flag, flag bearer of his reign at the club, both in terms of being an ever-present in the team and sort of defining the way we play for a large part of it, as well as just being a leader and a culture setter in the club for even before Arteta was here. And that was something I always found quite admirable in him. That is his sort of own sense of responsibility towards the team. And I think that has both made him the, the great player that he was, but also came to his detriment to some degree. What in, in the periods where we weren't as organized as we were now, Granite has often been the one who sort of took it upon himself to close gaps for players who weren't there or to take responsibility when others didn't want it, which at points ended up in him over-complicating his own role and often led to him getting sent off or doing something stupid, um, which was leveled against him, though I always thought it came from a place of trying to take care of others and not necessarily through a selfish lens of wanting to do something stupid or sort of his innate stupidity as a player. So... I, I saw him as a sort of both a representation of Arteta's Arsenal as well as just a, a great leader of the club for a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys have done really well in putting it. I think I, I've already committed to, by the way, my first pet will be called Granite. So <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, I've always liked Granite Xhaka. At the same time, there was a moment uh, against Palace where I wanted him outside the club I, I was one of those fans that never wanted him to put on an Arsenal shirt again 
um, probably blinded by emotion as a lot of us were. Um, yeah, you guys have touched on a lot. I think functionally as well, he's sort of reinvented his game over the past 18 months. It sort of started towards the latter end of, or the beginning of 2022 and, and carried on into this season. He was kind of seen as a behind the ball midfielder because he's a great like circulator of play. Um, at the same time, he can't really defend space. Doesn't have the same angles as other midfielders. So like, I mean, it was, it's amazing to see him as the sort of player he is now. Um, both of his goals were like him attacking the box. Um, yeah, so I, I love him. I, I think it's probably, I mean, it is the right time for him to go if he wants to go, I think. I, I, do, I do really believe that. Um, but yeah, functionally, again, it's going to be really hard to replace him. Like he's such a crucial part to, to what we do. It is so sad that he is leaving as we come back into the Champions League. There's there's that small unfinished business, but I think in terms of his like personal arc as a as a player and leaving on his own terms, um, I couldn't be happier for him. I think for him it it hurts far more to not win the title because I remember an interview he did like two or three months ago where he said he had an offer to leave Arsenal like two years ago and said he he saw a sort of responsibility in himself to leave Arsenal once he achieved something good with the club after what he'd gone through in 2019. It would have been even sweeter if it was winning the title with us, but I think even just hoisting Arsenal back into the Champions League is an achievement he can be proud of and something he can uh, see as a nice bookend to him coming into the club in the last season we were in the Champions League and now leaving, having brought us back there. And being an integral part in bringing the club back there as well. Granite Xhaka, we salute you. <laughs> On to the more tactical side of the game. It was an unchanged team from last week's defeat against Forest, And we spoke a lot in last week's pod about how... Trossard on the left was an issue because of his reluctance, shall we say, to hold width. A 5-0 scoreline doesn't suggest that that was necessarily an issue in this game. Alex, why did Trossard on the left work this week where it didn't last? So I was still annoyed to see him starting um, out left for not just reasons um, to do with the the tactical issue, but also just because I thought it was a good chance to to play Reese or maybe Smith Rowe in, in essentially another dead rubber, which we didn't. But from a tactical perspective, I was also, same as we pointed out ad nauseum on, on the Forest thing, that he does lack that sort of discipline just to hold wide and wait those minutes that he needs to. And we did see that again this game. Um, ultimately, it actually helped us kind of overload them through the center even, but that had a lot to do with how bad Wolves were. They were I think they were quite bad against us. Their block was awful. It didn't really move with Trossard coming narrow, so it didn't it kind of just stayed wide, um, so <laughs> which allowed for basically the middle to become quite porous. And I think that alongside the fact that we scored inside two minutes um, compared to not scoring in the Forest game meant that the game stayed um, and not being able to get them in transition Forest. I mean, whereas we could, Wolves made it a far different game, which led to 5-0 rather than 0-1. Um, um, but I still think it's something that is a tactical issue. I'm not sure. I don't really like Trossard out wide. I think I made that clear last week. Um, I'm not sure Teta should go forward with it, but it worked out this game. 
Yeah, um, I think Wolves were terrible. Um, it was really easy, particularly with Partey actually successfully inverting this time, which he barely did against Forest. which I, I by the way, I still don't understand what that was. Um, but given the fact that he did invert this time, um, both him and Jorginho uh, sort of played well. We had a lot of central pinning that we didn't really have um, against Forrest. And it was quite easy to um, access wide areas from those pivots. Um, I think especially we did progress, particularly in the first half, down the right more so. So Trossard had that liberty to sort of, you know, wander into central zones. Um, and then once the ball is in the final third, um, it's not too much of a problem when Trossard's quote-unquote holding width just because there's a lot of movement on that side. But yeah, I I think it, it was a really good performance. Again, as, as you guys have said, it was sort of dead rubber. But I thought Wolves were really bad. Like they started with like this 4-3-3 out of possession shape and then Lamina went into the last line. And I yeah, I, I think we had sort of three V2s and triangles all over the pitch. Um, so I, th- I thought it was a very good performance. Lorcan, what do you make of this new system in air quotes in general? Uh, it's kind of a mirrored version of what we've been playing for the vast majority of the season, where instead of a left back who's also a defensive midfielder who inverts and a right back who's also more of a centre back who tucks in that way, we have a left back who's more of a centre back and a right back who's more of a defensive midfielder. You mentioned that you think Partey was a lot more effective at inverting in this game than he was against Forest, but what do you think of the system in general? Do you think this is something we'll see a lot more moving forward, or do you think this is just Arteta experimenting with two games to go? I think, I mean, I, I think it essentially is the same system in possession as the one, just as you said, just with dynamics flipped onto the right-hand side. I think, as has been pointed out um, ad nauseum on Twitter, I think the vision is that Caicedo is, or someone, is that right back what part um, the party is and, and is the auxiliary midfielder in the middle. Um, but yeah, I thought we looked really good in whatever you want to call it, 3-2-2-3, three, 3-2-5. Two, two, three, three, two, um, yeah, it, it was also good for both of Shaka and... Odegaard because I think uh, we certainly talked about last time when I was on the pod we talked about the fact that neither Shaka or nor Odegaard were particularly helpful in the build-up when we kind of needed them to be um, yeah. whereas when you have those two pivots with one of the fullbacks inverting and you have that 3-2 build-up structure it can be like when Shaka or Odegaard come deep they're sort of the plus one in that area so they're not necessarily being hounded by one of the centre-backs. Um, but I think it was really good. I, I also liked, I think, part of what was cool was, which we saw more in the f- second half, actually, was Kivior as that outside um, centre-back. Whereas, like, recently he's been starting as the right centre-back out of possession. So he's in the middle of the three. Um, and, yeah, he, he can access, of, like, loads of passes on that side. Um, but I thought, yeah, we looked really good. Alex, do you want to come in? Oh no, actually I wanted to add on to Kivio. I think he's, I'm liking him more and more with every game that I'm seeing him. He's really secure in the opposition half and especially with all sorts of passes that he can actually make. Often you get players that are secure high up. I mean, defense, more defensive players that are secure higher up, but they need to change onto an angle where they can 
recycle it. Kivio kind of has this sort of axis with his foot that he can go vertical. He can go completely laterally and is able to keep possession really, really well from pretty a lot of different angles, um, which is not something I expected or have really seen from what I guess you'd call a wide center back, left back sort of thing. I've not really seen from many players and I think it's going to be something that helps hugely. I think he's even better than it at it than White's is because White definitely does like to receive and get a good angle and then pass. Whereas I think Kivior is quite a little bit even more, and I, I rate White on the ball very highly, but Kivior is even a little bit more like supple in terms of changing those angles, which I think is quite promising. That's about it for the Wolves game. As I said, a very fitting end to a very good season. But we've got a whole pod to talk about that, so let's have a break and come back for the season review. So, season review time. As I mentioned at the top of the pod, we are going to do this in two sections. First of all, we're going to ask some questions that are more general about the season as a whole and about our feelings of the season as a whole. And then the second section, we're going to do our pot shot awards and give out some silly little awards that mean nothing. And by give out, I just mean say who would win them on the podcast. We're not going to be mailing Arsenal players little trophies or anything. <laughs> Our first question for the season review is, if you were told at the start of the season how it was going to go, how would you feel? Seb, I would like you to start on this one. I think with the sort of disappointment of last season in mind, and... The unfortunate fact that I have never lived through a title challenge before, at least to this extent, and against an opponent like this, and didn't know how that would feel in the end, I think I would I would end up being quite happy with the way it turned out. I mean, essentially the goal has been and will always be just finishing top four this season. That was sort of the, the predetermined uh, figure by which our season will be measured. And I think considering where we were at the start of the season and how our sort of expectations were back then, I think we more than succeeded in what we drove out to do this season generally. Yeah, um, I would have taken it any day and um, in hindsight, definitely would have taken it. I think it, for me, it was a really like nostalgic experience, um, especially yeah. with all like the hairland boys and stuff. Um I went down to London like a couple of times and it was just, it was so special. Um, I, the fact, it's still a bit surreal to me, the fact that we did properly challenge for a t- the title and, you know, there were loads of things that contributed to our uh, downturn and City, of course, deserved the title. But, you know, Saliba and Tomiyasu going down in the same 10 minutes definitely played a huge part in that. Um, but yeah, no, I thought it was completely amazing from everything, um, Arteta obviously knows how to cultivate sort of an atmosphere, um, rekindle the culture there. So, yeah, sensational. Yeah, I mean, the end of the season had had like a disappointing, but almost kind of everyone expecting it in some, I guess, our pessimistic ways we've been taught to be as as Arsenal fans. But even ahead of the season, um, Tiles, you'll know this, and um, Seb and Lorcan will soon discover. But I always set up a doc for a lot of like my closer friends, basically do like a full Premier League predictions. And personally, I predicted Arsenal to be fourth 
Don't ask me where I predicted Spurs. <laughs> I don't want to expose my lack of ball knowledge on this on this pod. But um, but I predicted Arsenal fourth, and I think I was like, that's the next step. Um, and it's a good thing to kind of look back on because even though it kind of feels now like ending second, and even though you know it's only five points off, in the end we really did collapse to some extent, and City really were were quite comfortable in the end. Um, just being that close. It's a huge testament to what we've done. I think for the first half of the season, we were the best team in the Premier League. Um, I think we were the, you know, maybe one, maybe the best team in the world. I don't watch enough of the La Liga or Serie A to really know, but we were, it wasn't some sort of reach to really say that. Um, post World Cup, it's a bit of a different story, but yeah, as Lorcan was saying, just the hail end stories, looking at Saka become a world beater. Looking at Martinelli, kind of, you know, I think a system kind of finally suited Martinelli. I think he was still a great player at the end of last season. Um, we didn't see enough of Smith Rowe, but guys like Saliba, someone I've been a fan of, it's just, it's a, it's a huge, it was a hugely enjoyable season, and, and I think we'll, yeah, I, if if I knew this, it would be like this at the end of the season, maybe the best tactical football I've ever seen, um, with one of the youngest teams in the division, and and ending a couple points off a team that could win the treble I, I'd absolutely take it so I think uh, yeah it's been a successful season it's it's been a feel-good season for sure so so I also predicted Arsenal to finish fourth at the start of the season so and I we think, were optimistic with that Tiles. a yeah, lot of people didn't we should say that yeah a lot of people <laughs> didn't um I think it's been an absolutely incredible season by any stretch of the imagination like, if you'd told me at the start of the season that we'd play the kind of football that we did, that the players that were at the heart of it were at the heart of it, uh, I think I'd be over the moon. But also, I think all of these things that make the season so great, like, part of the... It really did feel like we were the protagonists of reality through the majority of this season which is part of what makes it hurt so much that it fell down in the end. And I think, even if you told me at the start of the season, we're going to be incredible for six, seven months and then collapse in the last two, I still would have been like, oh, man. And that feeling carries through to now. I don't know. Maybe maybe I would have been more satisfied with it at the start of the season if you told me how it was going to go. But... I, I I just can't escape that feeling of ah. <laughs> I think though in time the the sheer number of moments this season has created that we'll look back on fondly will outweigh the the, the amount of disappointment we felt towards the end. Mm. Yeah, I, I I was just thinking about this when I was watching uh, match of the day. And like I saw like a replay of like a few of these goals and like the Reese Nelson one in particular. And it's like the at, at the moment all of these all of these moments that are really great and were really fun at the time are tinged with that thought of but how much more special would they be if we'd actually finished the job? Uh which is what makes the pain. So maybe in a maybe maybe in a few years time we'll look back on it with a more of a smile. But we'll get that get to that in a couple moments. Uh, sorry, Alex and Seb, you'll both have your hands up. Do you do you guys want to come in? Just really quickly, I find that interesting to 
say that the, the the moments would feel better in retrospect seeing if the job was done or not because i think essentially the the biggest job football has is creating moments in the moment and sort of the feelings we've created this season that we've all lived through are the the only worthwhile things even if we had won the title it wouldn't have been the title that would have sort of defined the season it would have been the the emotions we were feeling during the entire spiel and having those moments the the Reesnell's moment the game against Liverpool uh, against United the Liverpool home game etc those moments sort of will only grow in nostalgia and in, in looking back upon it because of the emotionality of it all I don't even think that's a word it's fine, you're German, making up words is part of your language. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. I think I think there's a there's obviously that satisfaction or gratification of of ending it with a trophy, um, which I think is a lot of the discourse in terms of like how football is discussed nowadays. But there's a real beauty about what our season was mm. that in many ways and I know like people but in many ways it was more special than just winning a trophy obviously for us to have won it it would have been even more but i think like we support football not just because we want to see a trophy at the end but because we want our team to win we want our team to win the right way we want to feel like we relate to what's happening and we connect and i think we really did and if you if we were to be told what was going to happen what the season would be like before and we were told all of these elements like you're going to feel connected to your club in this way I don't think genuinely that I would have swapped that just to have a title, but none of that feeling. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? So I think... I I don't mean to sound as if all of these moments would only have been special because of the title. It's just that... No, I get you. Because of the lack of title, uh, looking back at the moment, they're all tinged with this kind of, like, bittersweet feeling. Whereas... Like, like I, I don't mean to say that like they have no meaning without the title. I've seen a lot of people talking about. Look, there's been a few people on Twitter who seem to suggest that trophies are the only thing that matters in football, and you're not allowed to celebrate everything else. And I reject that entirely, and that sucks as a way to look at football. I don't understand how you enjoy football if that's your point of view on it. But let's move on to the next thing. What's the biggest thing that you've learned about Arsenal, about this Arsenal side this season? Lorcan, you haven't answered a question first yet. Your turn. Uh, I'm going to go for something pretty rudimentary, but just that jinxes aren't real. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, I can't tell you how often we were sitting in games at 1-0 up or 2-1 up or something, and I was going, well, this is like the part where we concede now. Um, And then we, we didn't. Or like we walked through a game just from start to finish, just completely like Chelsea away. For example, I was like, okay, Chelsea are not like brilliant this season. This is the one where we slip up and we won only by one goal in the end, but like that was such a convincing performance from back to front. Um, I suppose also in, in more of a macro sense, Pep talked about it actually the other day as something he'd incorporated, but just the importance of, strong dual winners as part of your defensive structure um yeah so i'll I'll go with those two things fair enough um i'll go next because i'm normally going to answer these last so i'm going to chuck myself in the middle this time this is my first season watching 
Arsenal, watching any team, every single game. I, I've been a kind of casual fan, if you will, for the majority of my 22 years on this earth. And this is my first season of actually watching every single game, all 90 minutes, in order to make this podcast. And it's been really interesting. So the thing, the biggest thing that I've learned this season is that Bukayo Saka is a superstar, or that he will be a superstar if you're being a bit pedantic. He is. I don't think he's there yet. He, like, I, I, like, I don't know if this was a feeling amongst people that watched him every week last year, and, like, I'm just new to the party, but, oh my word, the boy is special. He's so, so good, and we are very, very lucky to have him. Is this something that you guys thought last year, or is this, do you think, do you agree with me in that, like, he's really come to the fore this season? I agree with you. I think from last season I started having this, but even then I think I was maybe a bit slower than other Arsenal fans to getting fully onto the Bukayo as a superstar um, train. But, like, this season fully, I see him as the perfect winger that any sort of positional, possession-based coach actually wants to really dominate sides. I think he's got... He's got the ability to control games and the ability to, to offer really almost elite output and probably as he reaches his prime elite output. And I think that's incredibly rare to control from from the wing while offering that. So, so yeah, I'm fully with you on him being him being a superstar. I think it became apparent that he has something special from the moment he made his debut for Arsenal. Like, I remember because they were playing against my other team, Eintracht Frankfurt, in the Europa League when he came on and scored a really, really good goal towards the end of that game. He struck one as a sort of player that will become something special. And I think what elevates that even more is just what he means to the club as much as how good he is. Like him being an academy boy, him being the way he is, this sort of nice, likable sort of humble person that 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 has taken Arsenal through a very bad period into an extremely good one, representing the youth academy and coming through there to what he is now is makes it even more special than if it were just a player we bought at that age, uh that would become the player he is now. I, I think as well, um towards the end of last season I was beginning to think like this guy is properly world class. Also, he's bulked up a lot since yeah. when he yeah. started playing for us on the wings, like, which was originally on the left. Um, so he's lost some some of that burst that he initially had in getting past his man. And there was always a sort of um, doubt, as it were, does he have the elite like top end level ball striking to have that output? So if he can't, so I mean, I just remember having conversations with predominantly like admittedly rival fans at the time but it's like oh if he can't be his man byline 1v1 and he's not as good at striking the ball as someone like Kulusevski then he's just a really really good player with really good fundamentals you can rely on retaining the ball and he's proven that he's just so much more than that like he will beat his man 1v1 doesn't matter if you know what he's going to do or not he will do it like you saw that was it for the first goal against Hugo Bueno he planted his right foot and the moment uh, bueno like puts his left foot down he's gone in an instant um and he and his i think his ball striking has improved massively like that goal against united yeah. that we saw i'm sure we'll 
get into it later is something that he just wouldn't do slash didn't do before. Yes, he's... Bukayo Saka is a superstar and that's something we all agree on and that's the biggest thing that I've learned this season. Seb, what's your biggest thing you've learned this season? All right, so I have a problem with the way with the sort of media narrative around Arsenal, and I have done for a few, good few years now. And my sort of thing I learned this season is that Arsenal, as an institution, are being taken seriously again. And much more importantly, is a club that not only through their recent success, but also through the heritage that it's built up beforehand, that it's starting to connect to now again through having success, is a club that elite players want to join and sort of want to be at. It's a destination in English football again that rivals that of Manchester United. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. Like, we're, we're being linked to some of the best midfielders in the league, if not, like, the world, in Declan Rice and Caicedo. We're being linked to, like, huge players coming out of other leagues as well, like Diaby from Leverkusen. It's also just players talking about the club publicly. Mm. Like, we have elite players saying that this is a cool club, this is a club that people would want to join. We have Declan Rice Ka- assuming Kaiseido's that as far said back as... to Brighton <laughs> twice now. Caicedo, <laughs> <laughs> he's begging for it, is Kaiseido. Yeah, Caicedo wrote a good buy letter for Arsenal in January. <laughs> Having not talked to the club beforehand, but you know, but Kaiseido picked like three dream clubs, so he 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 he's a special case. But even just even just Declan Rice in January when we came back from the World Cup, talking about Wenger's legacy and talking about Arsenal as a club and how well they run, it it's it's something that we ha- we we've not been used to for years, like especially from that caliber of club uh, of of player. Sorry. Normally, it's the Jokers that want to stay at Arsenal, the Cedrics, the Williams, who have a comfortable life in London and have a comfy wage, and we can't get rid of. Now it's people that everyone wants who want us as much as we want them. Alex, what's the biggest thing you've learned this season? It's hard to kind of pick at, um, so maybe I'll just be a bit boring and ramble through. I think this is the most tactically sophisticated team that I've watched very intimately. Um, the the teams that I've watched before, I also support Lyon, who <laughs> have never had a tactically super interesting coach. So I think there's a difference between watching teams to get to know them, like I used to watch Fonseca, Shakhtar, teams like that, but actually versus watching 30-plus games a season and, and watching the, the tactical developments within a team um, of who is an elite coach in Arteta. So I think I've learned or I've refined a lot of my ability to maybe watch the game, I would say. But I think one thing I, I, I had in my head was to copy Lorcan. Well, I had it as well as dueling, very important. I think I learned that more from Pep, but it's been a big part of Arteta as well in terms of what he's spoken about wanting from his team. So, and that's that's really framed how I'm thinking going forward. And I'm going to do a pod with Lorcan soon, actually. I think that'll come, and Seb, and that's going to come into it quite a bit. Um... Beyond that, maybe I think I've always had this idea of the importance of building into the opposition half in the final third, but really the ways in which I want it done. Um, 
I think especially seeing what Jorginho offered compared to what Partey offered, really after being so intimately, you know, involved or, you know, watching this team, I saw the difference in terms of just simple decisions. One of the key things is Jorginho, I think one thing that's really changed for me is I used to always really value players who could always make themselves available for a pass deep, which Jorginho doesn't actually do, but sometimes just by making yourself unavailable as a pass, you kind of frame where your teammate's going to play or you pin you pin the opposition player in terms of marking you out the game and opening up sort of avenues for your teammates to pass. And I think that's changed how, I've, how, how I watch and understand build-up play. So those would probably be my, my different sorts of, of things that I feel like I've learned this season. Four very different answers to what we've learned this season if you want to tell us what the biggest thing you've learned this season is or if you want to answer any of these questions give tell us your opinions we'd love to hear them <laughs> send us a message on twitter at pot shop pod it's seb's problem now so he can reply to you <laughs> our next question is a look ahead to next year how well set up are we to challenge again next season alex what are your thoughts on this one depends on the summer um, but I think we're a team on, on the up. It sounds like we have a lot of work to do or we're planning a lot of work. And I feel, as I've said before, that I think we're going to look quite different in, in many respects. But I think there's no reason I keep, I keep seeing, I know we speak about Twitter all the time. Maybe we should ignore the people we, we see on Twitter, even though this is where we <laughs> recruit everyone from. But people are now speaking about like Chelsea and Man United. And I mean, I think the Premier League is, is cause it's so competitive. It's actually hard to say, but it's funny that Newcastle and Arsenal are suddenly not being considered as top four teams for next season for whatever reason. Um, but I think we absolutely can go from strength to strength. Um, it, you'll see like whether Odegaard can, you know, you know, um, replicate the sort of scoring season. Uh, those are sort of factors that we will see and that it will change how well we do, but I don't see a reason for us not to get better than we were now, especially with the sort of recruitment we're going to do. Um, I think a lot of it will come down to Arteta maybe being better in game better with rotating the team and keeping it fresh, which I think he's struggled with or not done well enough to this point. And with Champions League, it's going to be a lot more important. But but yeah, I think we're going to have probably the highest quality team we've had in maybe 20 years if, if the recruitment goes well. So based on that, I mean, I don't see a reason for us not to try aim for 90 points in the league and, and a far run into the Champions League. Not saying that it's going to be easy, but... I don't feel like it's out of the realm of possibility at all. Sab? Yeah, I, I, I would say I'm along similar lines here. I think we have a core group of players that is good enough to sustain a pace with which we can theoretically challenge Manchester City with. But I don't think the group is big enough to sustain challenging them. And I think that will be the crucial factor in recruiting players that bump our numbers up to a point where we have secured sort of crucial areas of the team to a point where, with which we can sustain our dynamics for an entire season and not just for months on end. Cedric's coming back, so we should be good. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's a great start, yeah. Lorcan? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I echo um, a lot of what's been said. I think, as I think Alex said, I think depth is a big one. Um, not necessarily like like for like in every position, but just like a qualitative depth. And I think that's what yeah. we're beginning to see Arteta really values um, with these summer signings. Um, so I, I, I just think it's as simple as injuries can't derail a season. As Seb said, we have the group of players. We've seen we're a 93-paced team, I think, um, when we have our group of players. It's just about, um, again, and we'll get into this another time, surely on another podcast, but just about um, ensuring you have that qualitative depth and also like shoring up the build-up, which we struggled with when Holding had to come in. Just to add on Lorcan's point, I think this does seem to be something Arteta recognises, and I think next season we're going to see far more variation, not just qualitative depth, but like flexibility of options game to game, um, particularly with the with the profiles we're going after. And I think that's very exciting. I, I still hold Arteta in hugely like high opinions. So as as a coach and as a problem solver who seems to improve season on season, particularly during these breaks, comes back with really fresh ideas. And I think has learned from Pep never to kind of sit with the same system too long. So, so yeah, I'm excited. I think we can really be a very good team again next season. I'm interested by this like idea of flexibility within options. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing. If you'll, it has felt like at times this season that like we've had a really good plan A, and then plan B is to do plan A harder. Um, whereas it'll be quite nice to have a plan B, C, D and be able to see those come to fruition. Hopefully we will. Um, In terms of my feelings on this question, I said, I can't remember exactly when, but it was on this podcast. I think it was back around the last international break, like March time, that I'd be happy with a top three finish next season, and I think that still holds true. I don't think... I would be very surprised if there isn't a jump from one of the four or so teams below us, like a United, Liverpool, or Newcastle, to come up and be very, very good next season. Probably Liverpool the most likely, but we're talking about Arsenal on this podcast, so I'm not going to muse on that too much. So I wouldn't be surprised if Liverpool, say, comes straight back up to, like, 84. 85 to 90 point pace and if we are in and amongst that I think that's a good season for us next year in terms of how well set up are we to do it again that depends very much on the summer uh I'm interested to see the kind of players that we bring in um Alex I'm I'm just interested why do you think it's more likely that Liverpool are going to improve back to being that like an 85 to 90 point pace team let's say 90 point team at the end of next season than we are i feel like we are more likely to to reach that i uh, I, i'm i don't think they're more likely to do it than we are Mm. i think that it's likely that we're both there and thereabouts and if they do it and we don't that's disappointing from our perspective does that make sense yeah, like, I, I don't. I, so, so I think it's likely that one of those teams is going to be picking up, and it's not just going to be a two-horse race, us and City again next year. Therefore, I think third is fine. 
Let's move on to our fourth and final question for this section of the podcast. How will this season be looked back on in five years' time? Seb? I think it will be framed largely through what we do next season and the season after. Like, if we win the title next season, this season will not feel as bittersweet as it does now and feel more like a sort of starting point to something greater, if that makes sense. And I think that will prevail. I think the the primary thing this season will be remembered for, even though it started the season earlier, was just the the reconnection across all departments of the club to the fans and the sort of good vibes that have returned to the to the club as a whole. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think it's maybe this season where people started to believe. It took me until just because I again the Arsenal fan in me but it took me until probably 2023 January 2023 to actually start believing that we could actually do this um I'm gonna again uh call upon the the tribal fan in me and Gary Neville as you know all Arsenal fans have pointed out repeatedly um has kind of slagged us off the whole season um and his side it was I think it was Alan Hansen said you can't win it with kids and they didn't win it that season and then went on to win it the next season. So um, I think we'll win the league next season. Um, <laughs> Narrative rules but I think, are... Yeah. No, no, I was just going to say there's a lot of parallels with um, the ascendancy of Liverpool when they really ran City close with that. I think the first time they ran City close was when they did have Alisson and Van Dijk. But those are sort of the signings we need to get now. Those marquee signings um, that raise both the floor and the ceiling of the project. Alex? Yeah, I, I agree with both Lorcan and Seb. I also think we can challenge next season. I think it depends a lot on what we do. And I think whatever happens in the next few years will frame it. I think whatever way the season's going to be looked back on very fondly, I think it's it's a superstar-type breakout season for a lot of our players who are going to be important for us. Um I think it, as Seb said, it, it's a reconnecting like the fan base. I think, as as Lorcan said, it's something that does feel like we're building just at the beginning of a project. And Liverpool fans look back on to the seasons where they ran City close but didn't win very fondly. I mean, I think the you know the the genuine fans, not not the comparing title sort of discussion, mm-hmm. right? If you leave that aside, and I feel like it's going to be the same the same for us um it will be looked or potentially looked back on the same way that we've had with like the 0708 um sort of and i hope it's not like that where it's a very young promising team that kind of got derailed i hope that there's Mm -hmm. not that similar sort of thing but we look back on that team that was probably the first time that i really truly became like a proper arsenal fan rather than just someone who whose family supported arsenal so so I feel like it's a it's a significant season, whichever way you want to look at it, regardless of whether we end next season sixth, let's say. I do think what is is just genuinely really nice is the unification of the club. As much as it sounds like a corporate thing, but this sort of one club ethos we've created with the connection to the women's team and the cre- connection to the academy has has sort of done as much as the actual winning to really establish this as a likable team and a likable group and a likable club that recognizes who it is and why the fans love it as much as they do yeah i i don't think 
in my personal opinion, I have any anything else to add to what you guys have said. I, I think you're all very correct in how this season will be looked back on. Let's have another break, and when we come back, let's start off the Potshot Awards. Right. Here it is, the section of the pod you've all been waiting for. Welcome, one and all, to the inaugural Pot Shot Awards. The way this is going to work is we have seven awards to give out. All of these we have one nomination for from each of us, apart from a few where each of us have given a top three. We are going to give our nominations in this order. Lorcan will say his, then Seb will say his, then Alex will say his, then I will say mine. And we will give them all at the start, and then we will discuss afterwards. So, starting off with the newcomer of the season. Before we get into the nominations, the uh, eligible players were Gabriel Jesus, Zinchenko, Fabio Vieira, Matt Turner, Marquinhos, Jorginho, Trossard, Kivio, and Saliba. Lorcan. Who is your nomination? Um, it's hard to separate the two between Zinchenko and Jesus just because in large part like they came from the same team and there was that whole narrative. I'm just going to go with Jesus, I think, just because of... Oh, I don't know, actually. I'm going to go with Zinchenko because I got his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Seb, who's your nominee? So I did the top three. And Nomin- all uh, let's three. go out in the top three, sorry. And by the way, we had an doc that we were doing a top three here, so I feel kind of shafted that. Sorry, no, it was in, the, <laughs> not, not for not, that so, part. Sorry, they, on the um, it's yeah. fine. Anyway, so my top three is all players that have in some way or another transformed the team as a whole. Uh, I do want to give a special shout out to both the January editions of Trossa and Jorginho. I think both have had a reasonable impact in the time they've been here. Trossard having 10 assists after coming in in basically February is mad, actually. Uh, and I I put out the take earlier that I think that Jorginho uh, has actually been probably the most consistent slash best performer of Arsenal in the last three, 10 games of the season, roundabout. Um, so I do want to shout those th- uh, two out. But my top three would be Jesus in third, especially considering the sort of end to the Lacazette era into having Jesus there. Uh, number two would be Zinchenko, and number one is the player that has sort of evolved us the most is uh, Saliba. Alex, your nomination? So I'm stuck between two. Um, it was between Gabby J and Saliba, and I am struggling to separate them. Um... I think I'm going to say Saliba. I think he's he's been incredibly important. I think actually he's a bit underrated despite how high his reputation is coming out of this season. I've gone a bit left field with mine. Uh, so Matt Head-Turner. Uh, no, not quite. Not that <laughs> left field. I, uh, so I picked mine based on like pure bang for buck. Expectation versus what we got. And so my signing of the season, my best newcomer, is Jorginho. Um, we've had a little bit of the whys already, but um, Lorcan, would you care to explain your nomination in a bit further detail? 
Um, well, I, I agree with Saliba. I just didn't factor him in by accident just because I didn't <laughs> think so. But I, I completely agree with Saliba if, if we're counting that. Um, I, I will just defend Zinchenko briefly. Um, what set him apart from Jesus was just the fact that he probably played a bit more games with Jesus being out. I don't actually know if that's true, but I think it is. Um, but just allowed us to um, control games, um, is ridiculously technically secure. Um, our left-hand side, particularly the first half, throughout the first half of the season, was loads of rotations going on, um, which is kind of the hallmark of our play. We we're really exciting to watch. Um, and yeah, and I think he did, again, now, like hindsight is twenty twenty. people are like, oh, he cries on the pitch and um, he was never a leader or whatever, but he was part of the person, part of the reason why, um, or rather he propelled us through the first half of the season. Um, so yeah, and I've loved him for years now, so <laughs> Zinchenko. No, I think that's fair. I think I would still say Gabby J ahead. You spoke about the rotations. They were both actually very equally important Gabby J a little bit higher up in terms of where they were happening and obviously Zinchenko from deeper. Um, I just think Gabby J changed, like, was a huge part of why we were the best team, I'm going to say, in the world for the first half of the season. I didn't watch much of whoever, let's say Bayern or whoever else had a shot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Zinchenko's a great shot. I think we actually pretty much nailed our signings. Pretty much everyone actually did well. I I know Fabio Vieira is maybe someone that some people have been disappointed with, but but I think he there's enough to see him doing well. So it's a high bar for who's best, but I would I would still say Gabby J. For me, edges out Zinchenko. Gabby J. Maybe didn't come back from his injury as sharp as he left, but I actually think Zinchenko was a bit weak in the final couple of months, especially got found out defensively, um, which maybe takes him down a bit, but. Definitely one of our key performers coming back from the World Cup. He was just... I think he actually won one or two players of the month and quite deservedly when he came back, right? But yeah, he was hugely important for us then. And I agree um, from a mentality point of view. I think it's a complete like... It's it's just silly for people to actually be rewriting the fact that he isn't a huge leader when everything said about him in the ground is like, he's the guy who gave everyone belief in the first place, keeps up the intensity in training keeps it light as well which is an important part of of it so yeah i do i do get that he would maybe probably be third for me um yeah if i had to do a top three uh i do want to quickly touch on Jorginho a bit more because i i think there is almost certainly a bit of recency bias in my selection of him i'm not gonna disclaim that or anything but i think as I said, like in terms of expectation of the player we were getting versus the player that has been pulling on the Arsenal shirt over the last back half of the season, I don't think anyone has blown my expectations out the water quite like Jorginho has. Like, I'm not saying I expected him to be a bad signing, but I expected him to be pretty mid. I expected to get like some hot mid off of Chelsea based on the way Chelsea fans... He is well, a hot mid. Talking about fielder. it. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, but yeah, based on the way Chelsea fans are talking about him, I did not think we were getting the elite six that we got with Jorginho. He has been so, so good on the ball. And we knew he'd be pretty good on the ball, but he's been amazing on the ball. 
and we thought he'd be kind of not so great off the ball. And he's been amazing off the ball as well. Like, putting Jorginho in the six has kind of redefined what we thought an Arteta six in this system could be. Like, in terms of, like, opened our eyes to what not Partey playing at the base of our midfield could be. And I think that's really cool. Even if, probably, yes, Saliba is the correct answer. <laughs> I think what Jorginho shows more than anything is that Chelsea fans are quite thick. <laughs> <laughs> and that's worthy of being newcomer of the season, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was one of the few that that sort of championed that move when it happened. Just being someone who watched Jorginho since he was at Napoli and loving the player. and Just having someone who is a sort of the perfect example of what a six should be in a possession team. And I, I said this before on Twitter, I think that my biggest wish would be that Jorginho currently is like 25, 26. And we could have him for a prolonged period of time for right around the time Chelsea had him. Let's, let's talk about Saliba a little bit more. I, I remember right at the very start of this season, Alex, you and I were talking about how we weren't even sure if Saliba was going to come in and displace Ben White to start as, well, as a centre-back. I do want to be clear, it's not because of how I rated Saliba, but just because no. of how I thought Arteta had yeah. it, because of not necessarily knowing that Ben White was going to go to right-back. Yeah, like so, well, obviously, yeah. yeah, obviously we didn't know Ben White was going to go to right-back, but we didn't think, we weren't sure if Saliba was going to be a regular starter this season. And he's, you could make a very decent argument over the course of the season that Saliba has been our most important player, given how we've looked in his absence. So I think that he's almost certainly like the de facto best newcomer here. And I do think it's worth mentioning that the loan he the last loan he had at Marseille was in retrospect really instrumental to his development. And I think the the bits he learned under Sampaoli in that season has sort of elevated him even more than what he was previously. I mean, just looking at him, he looks fake as a centre-back. He looks like how you would mould a central defender. But his value on the ball has even skyrocketed post having worked with Sampoli. And it's funny because it comes down to actually being a bit more simple or less ambitious on the ball because he drops a lot deeper to receive. And these are things that Sampoli really put in some ways what you saw at Etienne um, and at Nice as well, um, was he likes to receive under pressure and then kind of dribble out of it. That used to be a lot more his style. Um, and you don't see that nearly as much, but it, it makes him a much better player, a much more calculated player. And I think that was huge in terms of helping us break, break through. But I think, yeah, we should probably move on from, from newcomer of the season. Absolutely. So our next award is the most improved or most surprising performer. Um, Alex, would you care to explain what this award is, as you were the one who wrote it down? I wrote it down and I, I regret it because when I was <laughs> trying to answer it earlier, I was like, I actually have a most improved and a most surprising. I guess if I had to combine them, I have a thought. But basically, it was supposed to give you guys like a leeway of how to choose it, but I guess most improved slash surprising is a performer that we weren't maybe expecting to rely on um, when we bought them or when they came into the season. And 
ended up being a lot more important or a lot slash a lot more impressive than than we expected. Lorcan? I I think yeah, there's different ways you can sort of tackle this. I'm I'll go I guess I'll go for Ben White taking you know, warming to the duty of right back as quickly as he did. Um, he's so complete as a right back, and he's so again, like particularly during the before um, Saliba got injured, just like helping us build through the thirds, providing an overlapping option for um, for Saka, being a really good half space crosser. Um, and then I guess my sec. I just want to mention. I, I am really surprised. I don't know whether other people are, but I was really surprised by um, Odegaard being able to reach the output that he did. I didn't think. Um, I I didn't pick up on on how much of a box threat he was arriving from deep, um, even towards the latter end of last season. And he's had loads of goals like that. He had a couple against Chelsea, Bournemouth. Like he's got loads of goals where he's just arriving deep, sort of in like a Lampard style. Um, so yeah, but I'll, I'll go for White. Seb? My most improved player is Granit Chaka. I think watching him in a similar position at the end of last season where we already switched to sort of what we're doing this season and seeing him relatively cumbersome and not necessarily as dynamic had, had me questioning where he would be this season if we were to continue in a similar vein. And he came back from preseason looking just leaner, fitter than he's probably ever been. And having as much of an impact as he's ever had, just generally uh, generally throughout the entire team. And I think that merits him being the most improved player. Alex? Yeah, so maybe this is more of a personal one because I don't think he's probably played enough... <laughs> for an award but Reese Nelson personally particularly surprising um as someone who watched a lot of him when he was playing in the youth team I was a big fan but then um yeah his early his early showings when he first came into the first team was very withdrawn um and I guess over all of these years and these loans or not going on loan kind of lost faith in him making it particularly with regards to application and stuff issues that had been Issues in the news and, and stuff or rumours of, of his lack of application, which Arteta seems to have, have confirmed this season. Well, he's actually spoken about how Reese looks like a new man after coming back from from Feyenoord. Um, always the player I was rooting for, always root, root for Haleen, guys. But I was very surprised by his um, by how good he is. And I, he's always had incredible technique, but I think I had doubts about him physically. He looks far more impressive as a physical specimen this year than than he has before and then maybe most impressively is his decision making and his ability to kind of understand tempo and and understand when to make the pass I spoke about Saka earlier as being one of those perfect possession side wingers out wide in terms of controlling a game and adding output I actually feel that Reese is pretty much very much the same or similar in terms of what he can offer in terms of being able to control and offer outputs and that's not something I was banking on for him at all. I'm very happy that he seems like he could be signing on for us because I can't say that there are too many wingers on the market that I'd actually want over him. And I am I am projecting how good he is a little bit here because we haven't seen enough. But but yeah, that's that's where I would say most improved slash surprising. I guess shout out to Jorginho 
for I've also been a bit of a defender of his over the years, but I kind of did assume he wasn't that great because all my Chelsea mutuals, many of I respect their opinions, didn't like him. I think he's fantastic after seeing him. And yeah, I like Lorcan shout about Odegaard as well. I never saw him being someone who could hit 15 goals. I always saw him saw him, him as like Messi Ozil numbers in terms of scoring as maxing out at that. So, so yeah, Reese Nelson's my answer, but I think there's a number that we can we can speak about. So my answer is also Reese Nelson. Ah, yeah, the two yeah. Alexes. Absolutely, two Alexes agreeing on Reese Nelson. For uh, and yeah. I, I I went for this one with a very similar kind of bang for your buck perspective as I did the new signing one. And if you think back to the, at the start of the pod when we were talking about like if you were told at the start of this season how the season had gone, how would you feel? If you told me at the start of the season that Reese Nelson was going to be a really important squad option who's at the heart of some of the biggest moments of this year, some of the biggest and best moments of this season, I would have been like, oh, damn, really? Uh, and I think that sums up like the most improved or surprising uh, section very, very cleanly. So, yeah, my, my most surprising player is definitely, definitely Reese Nelson. I think that's really fair, considering even, like, he didn't feature barely at all before the Nottingham Forest game, the home game. And mm. even him coming on there when Saka got injured was a bit of a surprise. So that was September, mid-September, end, end of September. And at that point, we had no indication that he would even have a future at the club. And for him to now be in a position where Arsenal is fighting for his signature is... Is really really surprising. Yeah, I want to say that there's one person I'm interested. In, no one shouted out is Martinelli, but I didn't have him there because I think the system finally made use of Martinelli rather than Martinelli making the jump. So I think that output was there. It just needed to be used or needed to be unlocked. Um, I was ready at that as a counterpoint, but no one brought him up, so I <laughs> thought I'd say it anyways. Um, but yes. I didn't bring him up simply because I already indexed him as an extremely important player and a sort of plug-in on the left-hand side at the end of last season. So it didn't necessarily surprise me that he took another jump considering his age and sort of the level of performance he even had last season. Our next award is for the most disappointing performer. Now, this is our only negative award of the show, so we're going to keep it quite brief. Lorcan, who's your most disappointing performer of the season? Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to go for Partey. Um, I, I really struggled picking a bad performer. And I think objectively, quote-unquote speaking, Partey had a very good first half of the season. But during the run-in, um, he was atrocious during like a four or five game period. And a lot of the time, I think you're only as good as your six. Um, you have to rely on yeah. a lot of them for... Um, and he just he doesn't have the natural temperament of a conventional six anyways. And I think we saw that against whatever the fuck he was trying to do in, against West Ham. Um, he lost his man a few times in transition as well um, in other games. So yeah, that's my shout. Seb? So just first of all, I completely agree with everything Lorcan said for reasons I have been speaking about for the past two months or so. Um but I've done something different here. I have two players, actually, so I'm cheating a bit. 
uh, one through sheer performance and one sort of through circumstances outside of his control. Uh, I've gone for Vieira simply for being the least sort of impactful player and sort of struggling in a lot of games where he was given the chance to start. Not necessarily because of things he's done. A lot of it is game state related or something else, but I think he's one, he's one of the only players who sort of has a question mark over him coming into the next season, generally. Uh, and the other one is Emil Smith Rowe, who is disappointing in the sense that we just have not seen him at all this season. I think he's on about 200 or 300 minutes total throughout the entire season. Um, some of that's injury related, but we mustn't forget that he's been sort of ready to play since mid February, end of February. And it's disappointing to ha- not have him figure basically at all through the entire run in. So that's why I have put him there. Alex, who's your most disappointing player? Um, so I'm not going to base disappointing on availability. I think it is the most disappointing thing of the season is probably that Smith Rowe didn't play that much. I agree with that. Um, this is a controversial one. I think I might get pushed back again. So first of all, I had two, um, but I think Partey, I knew someone would say it, I agree with all the reasons given. The other one is Tommy Yasu, and I actually really like the player, but I think he was slightly disappointing. He wasn't at the same level he was last season, I think. Um, had a couple poor games... I'm sad because I feel like he probably would have had a strong end to the season with, you know, regular minutes. Um, let's say Saliba had been injured and he didn't, but that didn't happen. So I do think Tomiyasu was slightly disappointing this season, had a bad run of form um, in comparison. But it's also, again, there were very few disappointing performers. My reason is I'm not this disappointed in Vieira um, is because I was expecting him to have struggles this season, especially physically. Um, and I thought he was likely to have to develop a bit more of, um, a bit more control on the ball and temperament, like a tempered style, which I think we have been seeing. So it's like teething problems, but yeah, I, I see his shot as well. Finally, mine is also Thomas Partey. Um, Partey was pretty good before the World Cup and he was pretty good, like, for a month or so afterwards but he was just awful through the run-in and when you go from being quite good to really bad that is disappointing and in a season of few disappointments that definitely wins out for me is the most disappointing so our final player based award back to being happy and positive is the player of the season award and this is the first award where we have each ranked a top three Seb ranked top threes for quite a few of them, but that's because Seb can't read. Anyway. <laughs> this is not my first language. Lorcan, <laughs> what is your top three? Who are your top three for player of the season? Um, Saka, one. Odegaard, two. Saliba, three. Seb. Saliba, three. I cheated. I put Saka and Martinelli, two. As a sort of combined wing pairing. And I put Odegaard, one. Alex. Saliba 3, Saka 2, and Odega 1. I'm surprised that Seb had Odega 1 as well. My third place is Odegaard, my second place is Granit Xhaka, and my first place is Bakayo Saka. 
I have no idea where to begin the discussion here. Who wants to? Who wants to start talking? <laughs> the thing is, I'm not going to argue with anyone having Saka number one. <laughs> so yeah. it's one of those. Um, I guess I'll I'll reason for Odego. Um, first of all, that sort of production from midfield, and I know that he's not as involved deep as he has been, you know, earlier in earlier seasons, but he still was very important in helping us build out. Um, so that to have that importance in terms of maintaining things slightly deeper, linking up stuff higher up in the pitch, and then also scoring is huge. Um, otherwise, I think out of possession and in the counter press, he's particularly underrated as a player, and it's a very important part of what makes us good. Our counter press, especially in that first half of the season where we were just cooking teams, uh, tiles, remember, I was basically calling it like, I can't even remember what I was calling it, like a, a cooker. Pressure cooker. Where you, Pressure cooker, thank you. Yeah, I think he's a huge part of that. Um, he reads, he reads where the ball's gonna fall in the counter press really well, or who he needs to move to, and I think that was huge. Um, and then generally pressing from from the front, also he's important. Um, and then yeah, on the ball, I think less needs to be said, but but all of those things together, I, I think make him hugely important. I think also in that sort of post world cup where gabby j had been injured i do think our system wasn't that in hindsight like it wasn't that good an adjustment from anteta not not to blame anteta it was difficult to do because gabby j was so central to it but it was saka and odegaard who's just their individual brilliance over those two months was painting over the problems and i think people look back and think saka's importance but i think odegaard was just as important um during that run and during the end of the season i know he had one or two games where i was a bit disappointed with him and i felt like he did kind of ghost but he also had a lot of important moments um so where i think maybe saka did go off the boil slightly not nearly as much as i've seen said but yeah that's what maybe edges it for me with odegaard yeah, I I <clears throat> I picked Odegaard for a lot of the similar reasons you did. So, just his uh value on the ball he had last season combined with the enhanced scoring up, but also just him taking on the role as captain and sort of the sent the sort of club meaning he's garnered throughout the year of actually going out of his way to sort of build an identification with the club and becoming the de facto leader on and off the pitch, on the pitch, not necessarily through the things we would typically associate with a captain, but more his sort of organizational work, especially in pressing, as Alex already mentioned. But sort of that combined package in a season where we were as good as we were made me put him as the best player of the season. Lorcan, I want to know... Um... I know you have some doubts on on Odegaard, so I want to see where he kind of falls behind. Because I feel I have a feeling Saka's far more ahead of Odegaard for you than Odegaard is ahead of Saka for myself and Seb. No, to be fair, in terms of performance and um, importance to the team this season, I I think they're. I mean, I definitely put Saka first, but they're the closest thing to neck and neck. Uh, I think Odegaard possibly had a top, yeah, probably top five in the league. Um, it's both of them. Um, yeah, I, I have doubts long term, but I guess that's more conceptual. I think um, I was also a bit annoyed by the way Odegaard seemed to have 
ghosted, um, quote unquote, in, in particular games. I think, yeah. But again, like the the other stuff is sort of long term stuff. I think a lot for a lot of the season we were only as good as Odegaard was. He elevates the floor like loads in and out of possession. Um, as as you said, Alex, he leads the press, um, controls tempo when game state kind of permits it. Sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes he struggles to do that. Um, but yeah, I thought he was amazing as well. And your reasoning for Saka first? Um, just the explosion. And I, I think he was, for a big period of time, actually probably the best performing player in the Premier League. Um, it's just the consistency week, out, week in, week out. I know he's always going to perform... I know people will say that he ghosted in particular games as well. I think a lot of that was contingent on service. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cop out, but if you give Saka the ball, he will do something with it. And I don't think you can say that about many players in world football. I think that's fair. I 100% agree, which is why I put Saka at the top of my list. Uh, I've talked enough about Saka with the fact that he's a superstar way earlier in the pod. So I don't feel the need to talk about him very much. At the moment, do anyone? I know there's a couple players that like one of us shouted out that no one else did in like the two or three spots. Does anyone want to get into those kind of players, or should we just move on? I just think there were so many good performers. Yeah, I think we said a lot on Saliba and Shaka already, mm-hmm. and the They're fact Martinelli the didn't. Team. Yeah, the fact Martinelli only got like a shared shout out with Seb is just testament to how good. How good our team was this this year. I mean, guys like Gabriel, um, Ben White, Sinchenko, um, in previous Gabby J in previous seasons, you could see all of these guys being, <laughs> if they'd had the season they had this year, being our best performer previous season. So we just had a a very good year, and <laughs> I guess that goes as it is. Yeah. So our next question is one that I found really difficult to answer because I have a memory like a sieve and I don't really remember individual games very well. But our next award is for the best team performance. This is the award for the game in which we feel Arsenal performs the best as a team. Pretty pretty does what it says on the tin. Lorcan, who's your nomination? What's your nomination? I, I kind of jostled between two or three dependent on the criteria because I wanted, I like, for example, just to give an example, I, I toyed with Brentford away, but I just remember watching that. It was like a sunny Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And I, and I just was like, okay, that was really good, really comprehensive, but like, I'm not going to remember this season for that. Um, so my nominations are, I can't really pick Liverpool home because we battered them, um, even though it was 3-2, or Fulham away, which was just a, another comprehensive win, kind of like Brentford, but I'm a bit biased because I went to the game. <laughs> Seth? So I did a th- top three here as well, but I'm not going to go with it. Brentford at <laughs> no, home. No, it is not your top three. Brentford away is, or, is on it. It's the second. Third was Spurs at home, sort of start of the season, statement win dominating Spurs is always a good thing. And my number one was partly the best team performance, but also just my favorite performance of the season. And that was uh, United at home sort of coming off of Gabby J's injury and completely destroying United, even though Eric Ten Hag said we only did long shots. Um, that performance 
considering the the way it turned out and when we scored our goals and just the way we completely controlled the game, especially in the second half, made it my favorite slash best team performance. Yeah. I also actually had Brentford away on my list. Um then Spurs home as well, and I also had Man United home. Um, but Man United home, partly just enjoyment. But I also think, man, it's a weird one because I think there were parts where we weren't good, but there were other parts where we were just so fucking like crazy excellent in that game that it just, for me, I'll remember just basically making our way into their penalty area as it was as if it was nothing. Then that last minute winning, like, yeah, just a crazy game. I also wanted to shout out Chelsea away. I feel like it's one of those games. In, in in the end, Chelsea were like pretty shit this season, but we actually were just so good in that game. And if we wanted to kill them, I think we could have really just destroyed them that game. Um, it was also Saliba, like a fantastic performance from him as well. Um, but yeah, I don't think it makes my top three, but also wanted to shout it out. And Spurs, Spurs away was also good. Yeah, so I kind of have five that I was jostling with. I think Spurs had... Spurs away suffers from us suffering a lot in the second half and sort of yeah. Ramsdale yeah. doing great things. Interestingly, actually, like I at least the way I saw Spurs home, I think again, like this is a long way back, but I remember because I was really nervous for it. But I think Conte got what he wanted in the first half. It was just like yeah. poor yeah. application amongst the front three, front three, and then again we did really ramp it up, and then Emerson got that red card. So what I what I found interesting, just real quick, is that yes, Conte got what he wanted, but it also wasn't sort of conducive to winning the game because, as we saw, we broke their block through a great movement that sort of exploited the problems in their block. Because mm. Conte is shit. Um, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to point out is Liverpool, um, Liverpool home. I also thought originally. It's definitely at the time of watching, but when I rewatched it, I remember thinking we weren't quite as good as it felt at the time. But emotionally, that game was like the game when I first felt like something special could happen this season. So mm. I haven't watched it back. So <laughs> <laughs> apologies, but yeah, no, no, it was it was also a good performance. But I think maybe um, our defensive weaknesses, particularly as the game as Liverpool came back into it a little bit, is where it kind of fell short. And I think Spurs. Spurs away, which I shout out, shouted out, probably guilty of the same. So my pick's a bit left field again, like uh, like the Jorginho shout at the start. You're gonna say Bournemouth, aren't you? No, no, <laughs> I'm going with Aston Villa, the four-two uh-huh. win. Uh, and this one is not necessarily because we absolutely played them off the park. It's because of where it comes in the season, the fact that it came after. Four games without a win. Well, obviously one of them being away to Man City in the FA Cup, but then the Everton loss, the Brentford draw, and the City loss. To be able to come back after that with a 4-2 win, of course, the two winning goals coming in extra time helps, but like we really were battering down the door in the second half, and it was only a matter of time. So it's very, very satisfying that the goals did come. Uh... United, the United home game definitely deserves a shout out. That was the one that I did have at the top of my list until I remembered when the when the Villa game came in our season. Uh, so that's which is really the deciding factor that made me want to give that one a shout out. 
I think one, I just want to give maybe another controversial left field shout out to the um, 3 0, the 3 1 loss at home to City because for 65 minutes I of that game, fair, yeah. we got the yeah. better of Pep in a way that I don't, I haven't seen any team do. That first half was insane in terms of us out of possession against them and in possession. It, it, they just looked, yeah, they looked con- contained, which I don't think is something you, you normally can say City. Of city, so yeah, I actually I really wanted to include that one, but it's yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we had to do halves, I think I would put that as my favorite half. That first half. Our next category is our second, where we have each picked a top three. This is our goal of the season award, or our best goals of the season. Lorcan, what are your three best goals of the season? Well, your, not your best goals, your opinion of the best goals. I sometimes felt like I scored them, to be fair, with the amount of accelerating. <laughs> um, yeah, so I balance this again between, again, objectively the best goals and um, the ones which were also in some way important. Um, so in third place, I put Nelson versus Bournemouth, kind of goes without um, explaining, was definitely my favourite goal of these ones that I'm going to mention. Um. Yeah. So, what was it? Ninety seventh, ninety eighth minute winner, um, and everyone fell to the floor. <laughs> um. Second, I've put Jorginho's goal. Not or or you can. I mean, you can put Emmy Martinez's own goal if you want. I don't really mind. Um, just because like what a hit. Um, kind of. It was almost like a slice. Um, but and and he was surprised it went in in the end. Um. So this is the three two goal from the game against Aston Villa. Yeah. Um, again in the 90th minute and then Saka's versus United is my first just because everything about it like the aura the composure um, it seemed to be sort of that point as well like he, again I, I I said before he had he hasn't hit as many of those shots ironically his first goal for Arsenal was kind of like that um, but it was just amazingly placed and then sort of ran towards the corner flag to, doing the Rashford celebration so yeah those are my three Seb? I have an honourable mention for Udegaard's 1-0 versus Chelsea at home, which was a sort of nice passing sequence ending in Shaka having the ball and playing a sort of 20-yard cutback to Udegaard at the top of the box, uh, who scored a nice goal, which always aesthetically becomes better when it goes off the, uh, off the bar. Um, so that's an honourable mention. My third was uh, Jesus 1-0 versus Leicester at home. Uh, a game where Lesser was sitting quite deep and we sort of worked it around their block until Jesus came in, uh, got a bounce pass from Shaka uh, and sort of weaved a bit of space for himself to curl one at a sort of ridiculous angle into the top corner, sort of announcing himself as Arsenal's new number nine. Uh, my second is Oedegaard's 3-0 versus Everton at home which came after we dominated Everton to a point where they, with numerical parity, started to just sit off and allow Arsenal to do whatever they wanted. And the goal came after a quite lengthy series of passes, which the crowd cheered with Olais along the way until we worked it to Trossard, who then cut it back for Odegaard to score. And my number one is... Saka versus United for reasons Lorcan has already mentioned. Alex. 
Um, okay, so I have... I'm going to give my honorable one first because it's more about the assist. And I can't even remember who it was with, but in the Euro, who it was against. But that Gabby J assist for Fabio Vieira, who was that in the Europa League? Where he basically just from the side dribbles everyone, passes the ball back. Bodo Glimt. So I want to put that more about the assist, but that was just exciting. Um, in third place, my favorite goal of the season, um, same as Lorcan, but third in terms of um, quality, I would say is the Reese Nelson versus Bournemouth. Then my second and my first, these ones, I didn't have time to actually watch back all of our goals, so I'm sure I'm missing out some, but these both stay in my mind. Um, the, the second would be that one in the Brighton game that wasn't televised anyway. I think this was Carling Cup, uh, Carabao Cup, whatever, League Cup, was the one where Reese Nelson fed... Um, no, fed... Eddie, and then he did one of those, like, FIFA 12-type finishes. Yeah, that was just beautiful from both of them. My favorite, and I'm pretty sure about this one, was Saka versus Everton, just in terms of how smooth that was, the right-footed shot into the top right of the... Yeah, like, receiving in the seam, um, taking it on the turn as he did, or half-turn, sorry. Um, I just think everything was perfectly, like, perfectly executed about that goal, technically, the power at the end. Um, that was maybe, that was like a superstar moment for me. Just, it was too easy. And what he did was too difficult for it to be that easy. So that was my favorite goal of the season, I think. I was nodding my head a lot when Alex was talking about Saka's opener against Everton, because that is my second placed goal. Um, I really enjoyed it for all of the reasons he mentioned. I, I, I love how it kind of epitomizes something that Saka has done really well, did really well in that hot streak that he had just before we bottled it, <laughs> uh, where he'd pick up the ball in the seam and cause havoc for the opposition, uh, just pick by floating into space behind their left back, between their left back and centre back. He did that quite a few times. He got some assists from it. He got a couple goals from it. Sorry, I, I, Alex, you're like looking unsure. Do you want to say no, that? I'm. I'm not even sure how to like determine where it was or how he took it. I guess it was more of like a swivel than a half yeah. turn. But but yeah, I'm still trying to work out. The... It was more or less a half turn. So yeah, he, he drifted yeah. into yeah. space, like yeah. between the left back and centre back. Took it on the turn, drove at them, and smashed it past the goalkeeper. It was incredible. So if I remember Love it correctly, he had already opened his body to receive receive turned and sort of hit it with his right left left it was a zinchenko assist right and he was yeah he was just stood mm. there like with his hands like this like he looking around yeah. like past him <laughs> got yeah. it and then just smashed it yeah that it that's it's so good um but that was my second place goal my third place goal was saliba's first ever goal to the club the third in the three <laughs> nil against bournemouth why does that feel like such a towels goal? To because it's a centre-back <laughs> curling it into the top corner in the lovely pink kit we never ever got saw get worn ever again. Um, yeah. Well, we did, but we barely ever saw it got worn. Uh, and it was just, it was very aesthetically pleasing as a goal. And it came so early on in the season that, like, it was a big moment as, like, a reminder of, like, the player Saliba is technically as well. It was a visual reminder of how good he is. 
which is very nice. Uh, and my Extra winning goal... credit on that goal also for mm. Zinchenko not being able to believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, my winning goal is, again, the Saka goal against United. Just the... The anything you can do, I can do better vibes of scoring that after Rashford scored his goal were just top notch, top tier. And like, even though that's not the goal itself, it is, that's what makes it goal of the season for me. Uh, and I'm very sad that it did not make the match of the day goal of the season voting and, sac- and Rashford's did. It didn't. Seb looks very surprised. No, it didn't. Uh, Nelson's did. Saka's didn't. Anti-Arsenal agenda. We'll come back next season. Indeed. Finally, our final category after this mammoth episode. We're coming up on two hours of recording. This won't be two hours of podcast, but we're coming up on two hours of recording. Is best moment. Moment of the season. Now, you might be thinking we're a bit silly for putting this right at the end and not best player, but it just felt right to end reminiscing on these moments that, as Seb mentioned earlier on, were so important to what made this season so special. So, Lorcan, for the final time, what is your nomination? Um, now, in, in you saying it, I'm just thinking back to so many, which I didn't even think of. Like, almost every week there was a moment that made me excited for the next week. It definitely has been my favourite season. I think my answer is Nelson versus Bournemouth. Um, just because, I mean, I, I, yeah, I almost broke my hand celebrating literally, like ran outside <laughs> the room um, with one of my Arsenal friends. Um, and then the other one, which is pretty much up there, almost up there to the same extent, is Saka's Penn versus Liverpool. I just, I couldn't watch... Um, when he took it and it was for me that statement of okay we really are like this good and I think I wrote an article like that night maybe the next morning um about it so probably those two moments Seb I did the top three again (laughs) and I think it's worth mentioning here uh because there's a lot of overlap here and I just wanted to include these three number three was beating Liverpool at home just the legitimization of Arsenal as a serious institution again. And sort of Liverpool was for a few years there a team that we were petrified of because they were just coming at us and pummeling us every chance they got. And I think that's what made it feel extra special. The second one was Shaka's goal versus Spurs at home because I thought that was sort of a bookend to the Granite Shaka redemption story. I think I could reverse that now and say the two goals versus Wolves are as much a thing, but I think the the goal against Spurs carried extra sort of value because it was the winning goal, 3-1 up, sunny day, Emirates day against Spurs, uh, and people chanting Granitschukka's name afterwards. Uh, and number one is just Reese Nelson's form of that don't think anyone will not have that as their moment of the season. I don't really emote much when watching football. Um, I sort of turned into someone who doesn't that much, but that moment took me off my feet and sort of had me frantically doing silly things to myself. (laughs) Not only because of the emotion of the actual moment, but also the sort of rage and frustration from both missed chances and 
questionable refereeing calls in a time where we had a, quite a lot of those. The Brentford thing happened just a few weeks earlier with forgetting to draw the lines, etc., etc. And that sort of made the moment even sweeter to think we could have gotten about four penalties here. We don't need them. We're just going to score on our own and create a picture that could hang in the roof of players going to the ground, Saliba running to the corner flag, and the stadium in euphoria. Alex? Um, no, it's funny. I was just thinking where Seb was saying that he's not someone who emotes too much, because I emote over the smallest things, and it kind of took me back to the one time I couldn't, which was actually the Arshaven moment, like 20, or 2011 <laughs> versus Barca, where basically come home from like school and I'd sprained my ankle really badly from rugby actually because we're South Africans we have to play rugby and all that um and I remember when the goal went in I couldn't stand because I was like quite badly strained so I was just shaking like everywhere on the couch and screaming until until I couldn't speak um but yeah that was pretty much except with a lot more movement the Bournemouth Reese Nelson moment I still kind of think he deserves a statue for it um yeah, I couldn't speak after. I, w- I was just in shock. I didn't know what to do with myself. It's one of those, like, you kind of lose sense of self almost when that happened. Um, other ones, the Jorginho versus um, Aston Villa was the same for me. Huge, yeah, kind of delirium. Um, what else would there be? I think I think the Liverpool one's also a good shot. And I think the Eddie's second goal to win 3-2 versus versus United. And that one was weird because I knew it was coming. Like, I've never been so sure of something. Yeah. With yeah. 60 seconds left, I was still like, we're going to score. So maybe versus Bournemouth and versus Villa, it was more like, are we going to score? Like, fuck, this is tiring. Like, are we, is this actually going to happen? But United, I knew it was going to happen and it did. And that was a different sense of satisfaction. Just seeing that realized and seeing it from a player that I have a lot of affection for as well. So... Um, so yeah, those would be my big moments. Maybe also shout out to the early on Fulham game, um, where, where Gabriel both scored their own goal and scored the winner. My dad was there as well. He said, and that, that's what people speak back to is like the first time the stadium was like the loudest they'd heard the stadium up until that point. I think maybe it got louder (laughs) as the season went on, but like people spoke about that game. And I think you could really see the togetherness and the mentality of the squad, um, from that game my answer is not the Nelson goal against Bournemouth because I couldn't watch it live I was at a swimming competition uh, at the time and so I didn't hear about the result of this game until I got out of the competition I was on the bus That's depressing. Uh, yeah. but I before I do reveal my winner I do want to talk about that moment a little bit because even as someone who wasn't watching it you could feel like the momentousness of it through the reactions of everyone else. Like I've got a group of friends who are like an Arsenal group chat and the group chat was going mental. The group chat was absolutely loving it. Talking about how we were the protagonists of reality and we were going to win the league. How everyone was glorious. Everything was amazing. Like, the outpouring of emotion from every Arsenal fan of like, oh my god, we are the ones. <laughs> like, fortune is favouring us. We could actually do it. That happened around the Bournemouth goal were incredible. 
the Arabic commentary at the time. Do you guys know yeah. what I'm talking about when you, I say that? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It was just, I saw it all over pretty much all of my social media. It was around the time I <gasps> re-downloaded TikTok. And it's like, basically this, yeah, Ar- the Arabic commentary, which is so much better than English with obviously like the <laughs> translation. And it's this guy saying they're going to do it from like, as, as soon as we're 2 nil down, it's like they'll fight. Um, and then oh, the <laughs> oh my god that's amazing but yeah my Arab commentary in general just fucking slaps for these sorts of moments yeah <laughs> uh, my um, personal favourite moment that I actually got to watch though um, was the Martinez own goal <laughs> against Aston Villa the uh, the Jorginho goal looking back on it now it's kind of a Nelson Light in that kind of relief kind of sense of being pegged back and then going on to win. Like, the kind of relief of a last-minute winner getting us a vital three points, especially in the context of having not picked up a win in the last three league games before then. Uh, I think winning that game was crucial to being able to carry on, and we did... And to do it in such dramatic fashion, like, that's a big moment in and of itself. But also, the fact that when I was doing my research for the goals, and I was watching back some of the goals from this season, and I saw that goal, and it made me burst out laughing, because it's hilarious watching the ball just bounce off the back of Martinez's head and into the goal. The fact that it's both such a momentous, great occasion, great moment in that way, and also that it is fucking hilarious. That combination is what makes it the moment of the season for me. It's so funny. Right. It's been a shit long pod. Are we done? <laughs> I think we're done. I think we're done. So that's, the, that's our podcast. It's been a long one. It's been the longest episode of Potshot so far. Almost like... Ever. I, I, I'd say it, it definitely is. But well... It's the longest episode of Potshot so far. I reckon next week White might well be longer with the squad review. So if you if you enjoy long pods, then and if you made it this far into this one, then I'm sure you do. Then I'm sure you'll be looking forward to next week. Thank you to Lorcan for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you once again, uh, and thank you for reliving the season that was with us. Hugely enjoyable. If people want to find more of you, where can they do so? Um, on Twitter, uh, LX writes, that's LX and then writes as in like writing with a pen, um, one. That will be in the description for you. Uh, thank you to Seb for, uh, coming on and giving us some genuinely surprising opinions. I think my most surprise, my biggest surprise of the podcast, if we're doing an award for that, was Seb not pity- picking Partey as most disappointing player. Uh, but it surprised me as well at two <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you as always to Alex uh, you must be knackered my friend how are you doing not too bad not too bad good to wrap up the season uh, in this way and next season we'll be talking about how we did the seal Premier League double hopefully absolutely looking back on this season has just made me even more excited to get into the next one yeah of course, the music is made by James Blake. You can find him on all good music platforms at JW Blake. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Pot Shot Pod. 
Thank you very much for listening, and we will be back next week with a review of our squad. We'll see you there. Cheers.